Good evening, guys. We'll just give it a few seconds to catch up. As always. Good evening, guys. Welcome to Live and Undrugged Series 2, episode... I get this right? 10. Um, tonight, I'm speaking with um, a, a guy called Dr. Kevin Payne, um, all the way over in America. Um, and we're going to be finding out about his, 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 as usual, about his life. As always, it's not about me. It's about the guests. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for coming on. Well, hi, Jack. I'm so glad to be here. Brilliant. I just want to um, take you back to really the start of your journey um, and, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are uh, and what's led you to what you're doing now. Well, I, I, I started as a tiny little baby. That, that may be winding back a little bit too far, but... Uh, there are a couple of things in my childhood, you know, as a, as a little kid, you know, I was born in the 60s, I was a child of the 70s, and as a kid, I wanted to become a scientist, and I wanted to become a skydiver, and those will both become relevant later on as, as we uh, continue on, on my path, so where does it really start for me? Probably in college. Uh, and in college, there were probably two things that happened that were really relevant. Uh, I, I continued my education and, and I made a switch from the physical sciences to the social and behavioral sciences because I figured that humans are really fascinating and I wanted to study people. So that was one thing. The second thing is Along about the end of the year in 1989, I started having some weird symptoms and I started itching all over for no reason. And my eyes started having what I now know are called saccades. And that's sort of like when your eyeballs stutter and, and they flutter back and forth really quickly. And my balance started going weird and I became very tired and this was all unexplained and so I got really down about the whole thing. So after a couple of months of this, <clears throat> I went to the university physician and explained what was going on and I think he fixated on the I was feeling down about it. And I think he was uh, fixated on what he was expecting to hear from a college student in a demanding academic program. And he said, oh, you're depressed. And so he sent me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist confirmed, yes, it's major depression, here are some drugs. And so I said, okay. I mean, what did I know? I was a college student at the time and I was just a kid. So the drugs didn't work. They tried some other drugs, those didn't work. They tried some other drugs and those didn't work. And finally they threw up their hands and said, 
you are treatment resistant, which is the medical establishment's way of saying, we're washing our hands of you, good luck. And it really threw my life into a tailspin. But then in a few months, I was back to normal again. And so I proceeded on with my life. And, and then in a couple of years, I had another one of these, these incidents. And by this time, I was like, oh, well, it's my weird depression and there's nothing they can do about it. So I just gutted my way through it. And then I was back to normal again. And then a few years later, an even worse uh, episode hit. <clears throat> and during that episode, I did really become very depressed. I lost all my normal personal habits. I gained 120 pounds. And so I, I went from a 27 inch waist to barely squeezing into a 46 inch pant. And, and, and then uh, after a couple of years of that, one morning I woke up and I was like, holy cow, I look like the guy who swallowed Kevin. And I suddenly felt more like myself again. So I went back to my old habits and lost 120 pounds over the next couple of years. And, and you know, as you can tell now, I'm, I'm pretty much that same size as I, as I was. So, so that was another weird incident. And then finally, in 2002, I woke up one morning and I felt weird again, but it was a different set of symptoms. This time, I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. And I thought to begin with, oh, I'd probably just pinched a nerve working out the day before. So I didn't think a whole lot about it. And a few days later, it was back to normal. And then it was gone again. And then it was back. And then it was other parts of my body's disappearing. And then finally, one morning, I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head. But the rest of my body was just gone. And at that point, my then wife said, I'm putting my foot down. This weirdness has gone on long enough. You're going to get it looked at. So I went in, got it looked at. Uh, he sent me to a neurologist. And the neurologist at first said, well, you'll be pleased to know that it is not multiple sclerosis. <laughs> and, and, and then he said, but remember, this is the early 2000s. And MRIs didn't have as good a resolution as, as they had later on. So. He said, but we've got this new MRI in the region that's got a better resolution. I'm going to send you to that one. And if anything is, is wrong, then my office will contact you. Otherwise, come back in three months and we'll you know, see what we can figure out. <clears throat> so I did the MRI. I didn't hear from his office. I, I moved to cancel the appointment a few times because I was like, I'm not going to find anything else out. But... I decided, well, okay, I'll go ahead and keep it. And so I went and he bustled in that morning and he had an alarmingly thick file. And of course that tells you how long ago this was because it was still a paper file and not an EMR. Um, but he sat down across from me and you know we exchanged our pleasantries. He started flipping through the file and then he suddenly stopped cold. And he did a wild-eyed double take at my file. Now, I can tell you that you never want your neurologist to do a wild eye double take at your file, but he did. And then he looked at me and he looked kind of sheepish and he said, excuse me, 
I've got to go check something. I'll be right back. And then he bustled out of the room. Leaving me for probably the longest five minutes in my life up to that point. And then he comes back in and he's moving kind of slow and he's a little slumped over and he kind of slumps in front of me and he begins, I'm so sorry. Now, again, you never want your neurologist to start by saying, I'm so sorry, but he did. He said, after my office should have contacted you with the new imaging, there's no doubt it is multiple sclerosis and it's been in your system for a long time. And that was quite a rearrangement to my world. It, it, it sort of felt like all of a sudden my world is in free fall and, and the bottom had dropped out of my life. So that was how I got diagnosed after, by this time it was 17 years of off again, on again symptoms. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so I have known that I have had multiple sclerosis for, well, you know, since 2006. And, and that's the second thing that, you know, that's, that's one thing that people probably want to know. The other thing is during all this time, I, I did complete my education. I got my doctorate in sociology and psychology, specialized in research methods and data science. And I also specialize in research around the question, why do some people succeed and other people fail when confronted with difficult circumstances? And that question over the years kind of morphed into how do we live a good life even if we are, are faced with something really bad we can't get away from? Because most of our strategies are about distance. It's about getting distance away from the bad thing. And that's how our acute stress response works. That's how our primal fight or flight system works, which is really a lot more than fight or flight. It's really freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock, fright, faint. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on, but it's all about getting distance or apparent distance between you and the bad thing. So I had been doing research long before I was diagnosed that turned out to be really applicable to life with a health condition you can't get away from or life as a caregiver to someone with a health condition that's not going away. And of course, the third thing that people might be interested in about me is that uh, going all the way back to the beginning as a little kid, I wanted to be a skydiver. And I started doing that training in the 90s. And then I rapidly realized that skydiving is not a hobby. It's a lifestyle choice. And it requires a lot of time and commitment to do it and to do it well. So I'd gotten a handful of jumps in and then a lot of life got in the way. And, you know, it was career. And so I completed my education. I was a professor for 15 years. Uh, and we had a couple of kids and then health was an issue. And eventually my MS got to the point where it was so bad that I gave up on the idea of ever going back to skydiving. Uh, 
And after I hit bottom uh, in 2019, I decided I would figure out a way to give myself one more chance. And I went back and I'm sure that's a conversation we'll get back into as we go. But now I'm past 600 jumps and, and uh, you know, I'm, I am a comfortable denizen of the air. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's, I'm, I've done one tandem skydive and it scared the living crap out of me. Um, I'm, I'm not one for heights, I'm afraid. You know, give me a fight and I'll stand there and fight, but throw me out of a plane and I'll, I'll brick it. <laughs> Stick me in a plane and I'll brick it. Um, man's not meant to be that high as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, it is It is completely unnatural. There, there's, there's probably nothing more unnatural that you can do than fling your body from an airplane three miles up. On, on the other hand, for some of us, it is pure joy. We, we, I think we all find things that are, that are joy, that give us comfort. If if skydiving gives you comfort, then that's brilliant. You know, um, writing gives me comfort. Um, yeah, I love writing. Faith gives me com- my faith gives me comfort. But, you know, th- throwing myself out of a out of a plane three mile up that. That really doesn't give me comfort. I didn't like the way that it felt in my face. Didn't like the way that it felt on my belly. Um, and it felt very, very unnatural. So, um, yeah, I think um, I'll leave it to the guys like you. But, um, you know, I, I I really enjoyed what you had to say. I, you know, as, as, as we spoke before, um, b- before we came on, I've been battling to get a um, a diagnosis for a proper diagnosis now for like thirty years, um, because you know, and I know in my heart, you know, I know my body, I know my health, and I know it's um, relapsing and remitting multiple sclerosis, um, but they give you every other diagnosis i don't know what it's like in america but in the uk to give you every other diagnosis before they give you the right one or it seems to feel that way you know i got told i had carpal tunnel syndrome um i'm currently diagnosed with um uh, extreme paresthesia um and that's just basically ms without the legions um i know how scary it is to be sat there and, to, you know, I've got other things wrong, wrong with me as well, but I know how scary it is to be sat there and to be told you've got something wrong with you and it's going to change your mm-hmm. life. Um, and I don't think a lot of people can really sort of appreciate that fact until they've been through it. Um, you, you know, um could you tell could you tell the you know those that, that are watching and listening you know the feelings that that brings up at, at, at that time certainly and, and and this is something that 
you're you're absolutely correct. We don't think about until we actually have that experience. But in the United States right now, over half of all Americans now have at least one chronic health diagnosis. In the UK, you're not too far behind us. No. And same thing with Australia and New Zealand and Canada and much of the Western world. Uh, we, you know, we, we have health conditions that are lasting. And part of that is because we're better diagnosing things now to a point. Uh, part of that is because we tend to live longer. Part of that is because medicine does a better job of keeping us around longer after we have some kind of chronic health condition. So if you look back, say, to the beginning of the 1900s, you know, a little over 100 years ago, um, only three out of the top 10 uh, causes of death were what we would now call chronic health conditions, you know, heart conditions, cancer, you know, those kinds of things. And back then, they were often diagnosed really soon before you were eventually, you know, taken by those conditions. So <clears throat> now we've got people who are, you know, if you look at causes of death now, <clears throat> well, seven out of the 10, top 10, are now chronic health conditions. And the eighth one, suicide, is often related to chronic health conditions. So the, the complete, you know, the, the, the character of the kinds of health challenges that we're facing has completely changed over the last two or three or four generations. <clears throat> and so if you live long enough, you will face life with a chronic condition, most likely. And if you don't, you will care about someone who does. So it's really important for people to understand, you know, you think, the, oh, he's sick. And we've got this whole set of cultural ideas that, that kind of go along with that, that we don't even think about at the time. And that's because the way we learn what sick is, in air quotes, is implicitly when we're kids. You get the flu, you get a broken arm, something like that. You feel bad, you groan about it, you laze around, you take your meds, do your treatment, and everybody cuts you some slack. And then you feel better and you go back to the life that you used to have. And that's the acute care model. And that's not only the way that we implicitly learn what it means to be sick, we also train our medical professionals according to the acute care model. So we, we train them, okay, there will be a medical problem which will have a medical solution. You will prescribe something and fix it and send them back to their quote unquote, normal lives. And that's how we think of sick. And so when we get in the position where suddenly we're faced with this diagnosis, oh, now you are sick. 
and it's not going to get better. We don't have a frame of reference for it. We don't have a way of understanding that because yes, you know, I, with my MS, I, am, I, I live with chronic fatigue. I'm chronically in pain. I, you know, have uh, parathesias all the time, little phantom feelings that aren't really there. I've got uh, balance issues. I've, I've got numbness below my knees. Uh, and, and, and those are the constant symptoms for me. I've got another 30 symptoms that come and go at different times. And so I'm really typical of someone living with a chronic health condition in that most people look at me and they say, oh, you don't look sick. <laughs> but you, you just want to smack them upside the head uh, when, they, when they say something like that. And, but, but it's because, I mean, we've got to be more understanding about that. It's because what they think of as sick is, oh, I've got a flu and I feel really bad and I'm in pain and I'm fatigued and I'm just going to lay there until I feel better. Well, I'm always in pain and I'm always fatigued too, but if I just laid there until I get better, I would never have a life. So those of us with chronic illness can be difficult for other people to understand. We can be confusing because we're out there trying to live as quote unquote normally as we can when we can. But unlike other people who say, oh, you, when you feel bad, oh, you just press through it, right? Well, if you're tired, you can press through that because on the other side of tired, there's medical fatigue. And that's okay. If you get a little fatigued, then you get a good night's rest and you can get out of it. But with me, if I do everything I possibly can, and I do, and, I, and I, I'm really religious about my sleep and, and rest and nourishment and exercise and all the things that I can do to try to stack the deck in my favor. But still, if I do everything I can, when I wake up in the morning, I'm still extremely tired. I'm on the borderline of fatigue to start the day. So, and, and for other people to understand Think about, you know, if you're if you are a quote unquote normally healthy person, think about how you feel if you've stayed up for 18 or 20 hours of a of a vigorous day. Okay, you're tired. Well, for me, that's how I feel when I wake up refreshed at the beginning of the day. Mm. So what that means is by the time I've gotten into the day a little bit. I'm not just tired, I'm past that border, I'm into medical fatigue. And so unlike with tired, where you can press through into a little bit of fatigue and, and recover from it, from fatigue, the other side of fatigue is medical exhaustion. And medical exhaustion is dangerous. Yeah. Medical exhaustion is deadly. So, so normal people think, oh, just push through it. But when I push through it, I end up in the hospital. And, and, and so 
it's one of those things that because people are thinking about being sick in in their own experience of living with various acute health challenges that come and go over the years they don't have the right frame of reference to understand what life with a chronic health condition is like and why it can be so weird and why it can seem so confusing to those people who are around us yeah yeah it's, it's the whole thing about invisible illnesses isn't it i mean there's a whole campaign mm -hmm. in this country on tv and you know everywhere you know you never know what you see and i think we are as a society getting more aware of invisible illnesses um mm -hmm. the mental health system in this country i, th I think in, in most countries is still a joke um yeah. you know but that, that's another show and another several hours but um you know it's I, i'm not always able to um explain how i'm feeling when i have an attack it, it affects my thinking that you know you, you mm -hmm. know you get the brain fog fog and the you know when you, yeah, you cognitive symptoms are some of the worst for me um, um my wife has um a, a non-epileptic um blackout disorder and she mm -hmm. gets um uh, you know mu muscle uh, i want to say twinges but um you know uh and, and and that really affects her and that really affect you know um, and people have looked at her and said well you don't you look all right to me people have looked at me and say you look all right to me and yeah it's annoying at, at, at the very least um one of the reasons i do these is to is to educate because mm -hmm. you don't always know um and, and you can never judge a, a a person until you spend some time in the shoes and, and this is what these episodes are about spending time in other people's shoes um yeah it's it's and you know for me one of the one of the challenges is so if i'm having a good day and i'm really rested uh, as much as i can get then you know i i do i, I i'm a 50 something guy but I work out every day and you know by by most of the fitness measures I'm I've got good health on those measures for a guy half my age and and I can I can show up and I can really do it but I can't do it for as long and when I get fatigued that's a hard stop mm. I can't push through it and if I get too tired or too overheated or too cold, because with MS, you've got temperature sensitivity that's often an issue. Well, my legs can suddenly freeze up and I topple over and I'm paralyzed there on the ground. Mm. And, and people don't even, they're like, what's going on with you? So like sometimes, uh, you know, I'll be like skydiving. There's sometimes when I, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm geared up and I'm ready to get out on the plane and go up on a load, but I can, I can feel the early warning indicators of my symptoms starting to kick in. 
So I just have to pull myself off the load and say, no, you know, go without me. Uh, and and uh, that can be really frustrating sometimes. Um, but I'll give you another for instance. You know, I always debate about getting a, a disabled parking tag, you know, and, and I don't have one right now. I can get one, you know, from my neurologist anytime I want. And 99% of the time, I don't need one. But here's when I do need one. If I, if I say, go, am at an event, and I'm going to be there for a while, I can be perfectly fine and walk perfectly normally getting into the event. Mm -hmm. But two hours later, I, I may have to walk a little bit and then sit and rest for half an hour and then walk a little bit more and then sit and rest. So it's, it's, it's coming out that that would be the challenge for me, not necessarily going in. And most people don't understand that. They, they, they have no understanding that, well, you were just walking perfectly fine a few minutes ago. And yeah, but, but then my system gets overloaded and then my legs stop working. And, and that's, that is not a reality most people can even wrap their brains around. They think either a, a body part works or it doesn't. And it's like, no, with a lot of chronic illnesses, uh, we've got uh, this sort of challenge where it's going to ebb and flow and come and go. And, and we're going to have to, we're going to have to accommodate these changes. But, but that's one of the things that's most confusing for people. They, they just don't get that. And, and some people will think that, oh, you're faking it or, or it's convenient for you. And, you know, I can assure you that it is the thing that is furthest from convenient that you can possibly imagine. Yeah, I do apologize there. Um, I, I kind of lost you for a, a minute or so. The, um, oh, I just kept going. Yeah, it, it dropped. So I'm afraid I missed, missed some of it. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, just, I just caught the end of that. Um, I think we do need to... Um, I think for mental wellness, I won't say mental illness, for mental wellness... We need to put ourselves in a position where we are focusing on positive. It's not always easy because I think that, well, no, I know that the way that we feel mentally, spiritually um, affects the way that we feel physically. Uh, Certainly. It affects the way that we hold ourselves, the way that we speak. It affects our posture, which affects our bones. Um, and, you, you know, if, if you're adding that on top of chronic illness, um, you know, you have to try at least most of the time to focus on 
a certain level of mental wellness but when you add mental illness on top of that um and the negativity that's around um that's when it's affecting me the most and you know i try to ask every one of my guests um what they do uh, you know um in 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 times of negativity and how they can get themselves out of that and into a, a better state of mind. Um, sure. So a couple things here. One is that something that people have to understand is that if you look at the data and, and there've been a couple of really good large scale longitudinal studies that that replicate this finding if you look at the data two-thirds of health outcomes are due to cognitive behavioral social and environmental factors like about 60 percent of them you know is the, is the cognitive behavioral social factors and then about another seven percent or so are environmental factors now why is that important that's important because our brains are not divorced from our bodies. We, we are bodies that do behaviors with brains that do minds in an environment with relationships. And, and all of those things influence one another. And so this is really crucial. That, that we understand this because if you're like me and like half of the people out there who live with a chronic health condition, by definition, there's something medically wrong with me and medicine doesn't have a solution. However, improving my mindset and my behaviors and my relationships and my operation in the world will improve my quality of life. Is it going to fix it? Mm, probably not. Is it going to make my life much better? You betcha. And those are things that I can do. And those are things that I can influence. And so as a social and behavioral scientist, you know, I'm the wrong kind of doctor to, to uh, solve a medical problem. But I've got 30 years of experience looking at how these other factors can, can, contribute, can contribute to improving your quality of life and health. And, and those are real things. And, and so we, we call it this biopsychosocial model. And another thing that's really important to look at here is that in our minds and our popular culture, we make this distinction between physical health and mental health. And that is wrong, flat out, full stop. It's all about health. And with, with any physical condition, if that's where the root of it is, then there are mental and emotional and cognitive and behavioral consequences that follow from that. If it is fundamentally something that is an a challenge in your brain or your mind, which are two different things. A brain is an organ, like a liver. 
and and what brains do is create minds so that's that's what it's doing and and the important thing to understand there is there are physical consequences there too and you can't divorce these and i think one of the challenges is and we don't really talk about this but i think implicitly underneath a lot of people think of most mental illness as analogous to disease okay and and they think that just like with a quote unquote disease there will be a medical solution to it there's a, there's a pill that's the solution or a surgery that's the solution or something like that for most of the common mental illnesses okay so depression and anxiety and post traumatic distress and you know these kinds of things right a better analogy is not disease but trauma injury okay and 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 if we look at physical trauma okay what happens when you have physical trauma your your body has just been met with a force that is bigger than it is prepared to handle and it is bruised if it's really serious something's broken or smushed okay so what do you need in the wake of physical trauma you need medical help but you also need rest and and you need rehabilitation mental cognitive emotional social traumas can damage us in the same ways and we not only need the medical support we need rest and recovery and rehabilitation and and that takes time and effort and it's largely not medical it's largely behavioral it's it's largely mindset and and that's difficult for people to understand sometimes that the solution yes it's a real medical problem physical illness mental illness it's all a real you know medical problem it's an issue with health but just like the medical system doesn't always have a solution for all of our illnesses sometimes we have to look to those cognitive and emotional and behavioral and social and environmental changes that allow us to rehabilitate and recover and regrow and and rebuild yeah yeah see, i was i was i was trying to explain this to my daughter at the weekend and um you know <clears throat> i don't think she she'd mind me saying she she has a fair share of anxiety and and, and mm -hmm. she's a teenager um you know in high school but um you know i i was explaining to her about uh, you know my addiction and that um you know i work a 12-step program mm -hmm. 
Um, and for many years, I went to meetings. I went to AA, NA, GA, CA, whatever I could get to. Um, but then I had to explain the difference between the meetings and the program because the program is not the meetings and half most of the time the meetings aren't the program um right. people get in the way um you know uh people's prejudice their uh, ego that gets in the mm -hmm. way so I, I no longer go to meetings but i do work a 12-step program because that is part of my primary care um, sure. and um you, you know that's what i get muddling what i say sometimes but you, you know for me you um the primary then the secondary and then the tertiary and i think we need to be not just focusing on the the, the, the primary care and, and, and the secondary care we do need to focus on tertiary care we need to focus on um you know as a society um actually tackling the problem um and going up against the problem um instead of trying to find solutions to all these different problems if, well if here's 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 the 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 reality of it and people don't like to to think about this but if one person say has an addiction that's a personal problem when you've got thousands or millions of people with an addiction that's a social problem and and what that means is that's not a problem you know that, that that is a problem in how our society is organized and operating and and you know it has to do with inequalities in the system and and abuses in the system and and those are systemic problems mm -hmm. unfortunately we don't typically have the moral fortitude as a society to address those systemic problems and so we are left with self-help and mm -hmm. what i you know and i don't like self-help fundamentally self-help is what we have when the system fails us and and so you are absolutely right we've you know we've we've only got this one life and we can't wait around for the system to to pull its head out of its butt and and, and become more humane. Mm -hmm. So we have to do what we can yep. with our mindset and behavior and relationships, environment, and so forth. But all of us who can have to band together and and be voices for the changes in the system that are self-evidently needed mm -hmm. and and so we got to go on both fronts yeah i mean you see the problem is um things like addiction um trauma um 
they are a disease of disconnection. So yeah. they disconnect us from ourselves. They disconnect us from his family. They disconnect us from God. They disconnect us from society. And the problem is that society then further tries to disconnect us because addiction is seen as selfish. It's seen as taboo. It's, it, it's seen as, like you say, as a personal problem. Um, and yeah. people don't like to see it. And I think... It's getting better um, the more and more people like ourselves that stand up and talk about the inequalities that, that there are within um, um, medical institutions when it comes to things like hidden diseases, um, hidden illnesses, um, you, you know, mental illnesses and addictions. But we're still quite far away from a solution because society well, we are but and and you know one of the things that i want to emphasize here is one of the reasons especially with mental illness and addiction that our society wants to individualize that rather than see it as the systemic issue that it really is is because it's fear and and the the scary thing about it is if i come to the place where i can honestly accept that this problem in our society with these mental illnesses and addiction are a shared problem with a shared responsibility then I have to accept that there but for the grace of whatever go I. I am just as I am just as susceptible to it as everyone else. And that honest acknowledgement terrifies people. So if they can make it about an individual, then they can stay armored in their own illusion of invulnerability. And, and they can stay armored in their own presumption of moral superiority. And that makes them feel safe. Mm -hmm. And that makes them feel like they have some kind of control. And it's wrong. And, and unfortunately, they're not the ones that have to pay for it. It's everybody else that does. But, but this, is, this is always the issue with, with these problems, these social problems that become individualized in the popular consciousness. Hmm. It, it is a way that those who are relatively privileged and relatively unscathed so far get to protect themselves you, you said you said about i know about fight or flight um mm -hmm. you said there were some other responses in there could, could you yeah yeah uh, okay so so let me let me go over this so so it's the acute stress response and the acute stress response was was defined medically 
about a hundred years ago now, almost. And and uh, you know, one there there are a couple of things that we misunderstand that we need to clarify here. So first, back at the same time, the same article that stress was defined, there were two kinds of stress that were identified: eustress, good stress, and distress, bad stress. Okay, now. How are these related to each other? And this is this is like chapter three of my book. And, and so think of it this way. We all have a, let's say we're trying to get something done, anything done, doesn't matter. It could be thinking a thought, uh, fixing a car, uh, making dinner, you know, uh, interacting with your best friend, whatever it is. We're trying to get things done. If you wanna be successful about it, there's a certain demand that that task has in front of us. So in other words, if you can deliver beyond that demand, then you're gonna succeed. If you don't, you're gonna fail, right? So if your capacity, and this is whatever your real capacity is in this moment, if you can deliver more than that, you're gonna succeed, not a problem. If you can't deliver that much, then you're gonna fail, okay? now. As we get closer and closer, as our capacity gets closer and closer to that demand, all right? And now our capacity is a little bit over that demand. Now, this is still triggering our acute stress response, okay? Because the acute stress response is not a fear response. It's a challenge response, okay? So it, it gets triggered anytime our system feels like it's it's going to require a, a lot of effort on our part and there's a chance that we could fail okay but right here this is some of the best experiences that we have in our life these are called flow experiences where the demand where, where our capacity is just right above what we can you know what that is demanded of us and so it's sometimes it's called being on the edge or in the groove or, or, you know, and, and we know what that feels like, right? When we're just performing at our very best and, and it just feels really natural and we're just like in the moment. And, and those are really cool experiences. But notice, this is a hair's breadth from failure, right? So, so anytime we pull ourselves back from some of these best human experiences that we have, well, if we're acting out of fear, trying to get ourselves away from these these challenging experiences where we're fearful and we're and and we're failing, we're also pulling ourselves back from some of these best human experiences too. Okay, okay. So now the acute stress response is happening, and this is the important word. There is acute. And so this is adapted for an acute, emergent, right in this moment challenge where it's gonna happen and we gotta deal with it right now. It's, there's a saber-toothed tiger rustling in the underbrush, okay? And we gotta get away somehow. And so the acute stress response is all about getting you away from this perceived challenge or threat. Yeah. So 
what we have to understand is physiologically, everything that's happening in our bodies and our brains. So our, our heart rate increases, our respiration increases, we sweat. We, these are all things that are useful for a quick physical reaction. Okay. Well, that's great if it's that kind of challenge, but we've now created a world where most of our challenges that we face are no longer that kind of challenge and they are no longer acute. They're chronic challenges that we can't get away from. So when we feel competent and we feel successful, then we frame that physiological response as excitement, right? And you know what that is, is the excitement that you get right before you, you perform in a competition or right before you go out on a first date with somebody that you're really interested in, right? It's that sort of thing. But it's the same physiological reaction that we otherwise label as fear, okay? And fear is how it gets labeled when we think we're not going to succeed, when there's this unknown. So now we, we think of it as fear, we're faced with this potential challenge that we are labeling as a threat and we think we're gonna fail, the first of our responses is freeze. So it's freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock, fright, faint. So let's go back to freeze. Freeze is what's known as hypervigilance, okay? And that's when you, you pause and you like, you suddenly your, 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 your eyes get wider, your, your hearing is more acute, you're, you're taking in more information, you're trying to determine, is this really something I need to address right now, okay? So that's hypervigilance. So freeze, the next one is front. Okay, so fronting, it's a slang term for getting all puffed up and, and you know, right at somebody, right? So this is two guys at the pub late at night when they start, you know, getting all up in each other like this. Now, do either one of them really want to fight? Probably not. But neither one of them wants to back down. They want to make the other guy back down. And that's fronting. That's putting on display behavior. Okay, so what is the first thing that we're trying to do? So now we've, we've frozen, we've looked around and we've said, oh, okay, I think this is really a threat. So now I'm gonna puff myself up real big. Why? Because I'm hoping that the threat will back down and will pass me by, all right? And from an evolutionary perspective, this is a minimal strategy for us. We don't have to invest a lot and there's not like a big downside to this. So I puff up and, you know, if I get attacked, then I get attacked, but I'm ready for it, right? So the next thing we've got freeze, front, flight. Okay, so now, and you've seen this behavior, guys are up in each other's face and then one of them kind of backs off, right? Whoa, okay, that's the flight because now they're thinking, oh, this might be a, you know, a, a threat that really comes to pass. I want to get distant, okay? So first is about, I'm trying to get them to get distant. 
Second is about, okay, now I'm gonna back off. That requires a little more effort in our part. Now, freeze, front, flight, fight. Okay, now we're gonna attack. And this is about pushing the threat away. It's about actively, but it, notice what's happening. We're incurring a greater possibility of danger for ourselves, okay? So we've got freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn. Okay, so now this is the opposite of the fronting behavior. So the fronting behavior is about, oh, I'm being big and, and you're gonna ignore me or go away. Now you've tried the fighting, you think this may be something and you're like, oh dude, I can't win. And you may never have gotten to the fighting. You can skip these stages, right? And just go directly. So now I think I am not going to win with the fight. And what happens? Well, I decide that I'm going to. So I decide that I was vamping there while you were gone. And, and so what I've decided to do is I'm going to fall on. That means I'm gonna I'm gonna get down real small and I'm gonna make myself seem so inconsequential that the threat's gonna pass me by. Okay. So then we got so we got freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock. Okay. Now this is I can't win against this threat. I'm going to join them. Mm. I'm going to become part of this threat to protect myself. So freeze, front, flight, fight, fawn, flock, fright. Okay, fright looks like hypervigilance, like freeze up here. This is where you are so afraid that you are completely, you know, beyond anything. And this, even though it looks like freeze, like hypervigilance, it's called tonic immobility and freeze is like okay i give up there's nothing i can do i'm just going to have to be real still and hope that i survive what's going on and then finally faint and faint is literally what we see you just pass out the way you get away remember all of these are about getting distance between you and the negative thing so now you can't, you, you don't, you can't see any way to get away from it. So you're getting your consciousness away from it. And we were talking about addiction and I will tell you everyone I have dealt with dealing with addiction, there is this strategy in play because you are about narcotizing yourself and your consciousness as a way to get away from this pain. And, and you don't have any of these others that you think have worked for you or will work for you. So there you go. That, that, is, that is the issue. But what we have to understand is this is all happening in our basal primal brain, okay? So, and it's, it's sometimes called an amygdala hijacking. And which is a wonderful term. But, and, and what we have to understand is that this short circuits are higher cognition. 
this short circuits our our planning ability and our ability to see the bigger picture and make a better plan. So if you want to learn to deal with fear, first thing is you have to understand that yes, we are biological creatures, we have fear, okay? And, and fear is something that, you know, it, 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 people run around saying, no fear, dude. It's like, you are an idiot. Fear is our friend. We just have to learn to frame it and put it in the right place. So go all the way back up to that freeze, uh, you know, at the very beginning. This is a pause. This is a pause before you have done anything. And what that is, is your opportunity. So if you want to deal with your fear and with some of the destructive behaviors that sometimes come from us trying to assuage our fear, freeze is the place that you need to focus. Because this is the place where you first detect a potential threat. And this is the place where you've not yet committed to any other activity. So what you have to do is learn to extend that pause. Before you, you know, drill down into all these other possibilities that are probably not gonna be useful for the, for the challenge that you're actually facing in our modern world, you've got to extend that pause. And why? Because our frontal brains, our higher cognition is slower than our primal brains. So by extending the pause, you're allowing time for your more developed cognition to insert itself into the process. And so like with me, one of the reasons I went back to skydiving was not just because I had a childhood dream that I wanted to fulfill, but it was because I had reached bottom. And the thing that I was most afraid of in the world was my own body. And as we've just established here, there's nothing I can do about getting away from my own body. So for me, skydiving was about learning to confront my fear of my own body in the air. Because there comes a point, and you've seen the cover to my book, and there's this beautiful photo that we took. And it took us eight jumps over six weeks to get this exact photo. And it tells the story of what the book is about and what I do with Your Life Lived Well and the seminars and all the other stuff that I do. And that is, think about this. When this photo was taken, that's 5,000 feet over the ground. I'm headed to the earth at 120 miles an hour. That means when that photo is snapped, I have 27 seconds left to live. If I do nothing, I will impact the earth in 27 seconds. That's less than a commercial. And, and that's, not an, that's not a hypothetical. That is hard and fast fact. Gravity will win. 
So what am I doing in that picture? I've got both of my hands up to, and you notice I'm in street clothes. I'm not wearing a, I'm not wearing a, a jumpsuit or a helmet or anything like that because I wanted to look like, you know, as you said at the very beginning, when you get that diagnosis, it feels like you're in free fall. Your life is in free fall. Well, that's, I wanted to look like a normal person off the street stuck in this extraordinary circumstance. And so there I am. And I've got my hands up to my forehead and I'm about to sweep them out in a broad gesture. And that's a gesture that every skydiver in the world will recognize. It's called the wave off. And what that means is I am warning everyone in my airspace that I am about to choose life. I am about to actively save myself. So I wave off and I deploy my parachute. And what I want people to understand is, yeah, we need systemic change, but we still have self-help as we're still trying to figure out, you know, getting a better system. And we can't wait for that better system to get here. So you are the only one who is going to save yourself. And yeah, uh, you know, we, we've got communities of people that can help and that can support and that can show the way and who's been there before and are trying to help others along. But still, you are the bottleneck. You, you have to save yourself. And so when, when I engage with people, I want them to understand that right now, when you pick up this book, when you take one of my seminars, when you do any of these things that we do with Your Life Lived Well, I want you to understand that you are now in the position of choosing life, of choosing to save yourself, and that you've got this. You can do this. Well, I've honestly never heard it. described like that I get it you know sometimes it, it, it takes somebody shouting in my face for me to get it but I I I I, I get it and skydiving you know, does put a different frame on it there doesn't it it it, it does and it's made I've got to be honest it's made me quite emotional because it's triggered something it's 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 triggered thought you, you know and at the end of the day I, I you know I attribute my recovery to to my faith and, and and you know to God and to my community and to my wife who who was there when I really needed her you know when I was when, when I was homeless and hungry and ended up in a food bank and she was the kindly lady with the smile and the cup of coffee And I, you know, I attribute my clean time with working a program, but actually, I don't think I give myself, I don't think addicts as a whole give themselves credit for the work that they put in. And I never yeah. thought about it that way until you said that 
Um, I mean, all those other things you mentioned are important, but and and I think you're correct with with addiction in particular because you have so many years coming into this of you telling yourself that you are failing all the time. And yet, right now, we're sitting here together and you're succeeding. And that's really cool. And, and I don't want people to interpret this as me saying you're an island and you can just have the willpower and do this all by yourself. What I am saying is that you are the conduit and it has to happen through you. And, and all, those other, all those other people and systems and programs and environmental things can help, but it's still the conduit coming through you. And, and don't discount yourself. Don't, don't you know, diminish yourself because that's a really cool thing and you should be honored for that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I am, I am. You know, it, it, when you're saying it, it made so much sense because, you know, when you were going through the list of, you know, um, freeze fast. Yeah, it's a bunch of them. I just call it the effort response. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when, when you were going through it, and when I was, you know, I look back and, you know, I'm, I'm sure many addicts uh, and, you know, will identify with this. You look back and when I was a kid and, you know, the circumstances that I was in and, you, you know, I, I couldn't do anything about that. So it was freeze. Um, and then... When I started learning that actually I'm not going to break with a punch, you know, actually I'm stronger physically than I think, then that went into fight, but then that went hyper that way. And then that turned into um, anger and violence um, and took me down a violent road. And then anger and violence was always the first response mm -hmm. because if i jump in with that i'm alert and i can control the situation because i know that i can unless the guy is 35 stone and you know got got a punch like like a brick i know that i'm gonna be able to at least give a good fight if if not win but then when that ability was taken away from me and I started to get ill and I wasn't able to box anymore and wasn't able to do um, the martial arts, wasn't able to physically get in there, then it was back away, um, <laughs> you, you know, and it was trying to find another way to fight. So I then started to use words um and my, my love of words to fight and and that's where i find myself now i'm not able to do anything physically uh, but i'm able to do it 
mentally with words i'm able to write books i'm able to educate i'm able to speak uh, i'm able to uh, get education from guys like you um and and you know able able to put that across because we so need this right now because there's so much crap going on in the world there's this there's so much violence there's so much I, I think that as a society, as, as people, we don't know how to respond. We see so, we desensitize to so much. Um, yeah, that's really important. We are overwhelmed and confused. And, and that puts us into this cycle. And, and that puts us into a place where we feel lost. And, you know, these are... These, nothing is good there and 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 what we've got to do is we've got to understand that there's some really good things that are happening on the edge and we want to have the good things but we we want to not have the bad things on the edge or you know deal with them appropriately but here's the thing an edge experience a successful edge experience triggers growth okay but growth doesn't happen there you have to pull yourself back to your home where you can rest and relax and recover and consolidate and nourish and sleep and and do all those things that we need to do to take care of ourselves so that we are fortified to go back into the world and and try new things and and try to be better and and grow again but we've we've we diminish and discount all of this important stuff that we have to do to take care of ourselves. We think, oh, I'll just push through. I'll just do. Yeah, but but you keep pushing and you break. Because, you know, we, we, we were talking about this relation here where you've got capacity and demand. Well, if the demand is a little more, yeah, you're overwhelmed and you fail. If it's quite a bit more, you're injured. If it's a lot more, you are traumatized and you break. And, and now this requires a lot of work to, to rest and recover and rebuild yourself, just like a broken arm would. Yeah. So is, is where does things like self-sabotage come in and imposter syndrome as i've heard it yeah well there there are a couple of different ways there that that would be a whole massive other conversation but uh for our discussion here the most relevant way is this is a kind of fear that short circuits you having to get to the point where you fail. So you're, you're trying to preemptively keep yourself away from everyone. I was talking about how if you pull yourself back and back and back, you, you not only pull yourself away from the, the, the potential bad things, but all these really good things mm. as well. So, so now you are so afraid and so unsure of your ability to succeed you you expect to fail so you're pulling yourself back 
a long way. And, and that's what, that's what imposter syndrome does. That's what, you know, we were talking about there does. It pulls us back because it's preemptively, it's driven by anxiety, okay? Which is, of course, a manifestation of fear and this response. And anxiety is generally anticipatory fear. So it's, and, and it's also generalized fear so it's 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 not a fear necessarily directed toward a particular thing it's just a fear of everything and life and and it's just generalized and and you know what what we have to understand is that we can have that there's a technical term for that it's called free-floating affect and and sometimes you'll wake up in the morning and you'll be in a good mood or a bad mood and you won't know why. And the, the answer is truly, here's what the science tells us, there is no reason why. Because your weather is, you know, your, your, your emotions are like the weather and they just change and you just happen to wake up at a part in the cycle where it was positive or negative. And so now you're casting around trying to figure out an explanation for it, but there isn't. You're just making up a pattern to make yourself, you know, feel like you understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, I, I think if, if, if you are, you see, I describe myself and I know a lot of other people like me describe themselves as divergent, have a, you know, sort of divergent brain. I, th I think that's the buzzword of the minute, isn't it? But, um, mm -hmm. you know, I know how far as a person, as a father, as a husband, um, you know, as a writer that I've come um, from brokenness to relative, not brokenness, <laughs> but, um, and then, you know, you, you can feel great and you feel great and you feel great, but then it comes back, you know, I've, oh, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got the nice things, you know, I've got the studio in my shed, I've, 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 got, I've got the VHS, you know, that's, that's my passion, that's my collecting, I've got, you know, I've got some nice things, I've got nice cameras and, you know, I've, I've, I've got some cassette tapes that, you, you know, because I, I love retro and, you know, I've got, I've got the family, I've got the two, well, <laughs> five kids. Um, you know, I've got the wife, I've got the community and the people that, that, that love me in the community. I've got the church, you know. But then it's easy to think, do you really deserve this? Right. You, you know, what have you actually done to deserve this what have you done to actually get this and i i know that there are a lot of people out there um like oh me. very much so yeah um, very especially much so. those and, that, that watch that, that, that go through that and deservedness is not a game that any of us can ever win and so you know as we're i i'm, I'm guessing we're probably headed toward a close here but uh you know i want to let me let me introduce the idea of grace here, not as a religious idea, 
but as something that we can extend to ourselves and to one another. And what is the coolest thing about grace? Grace has nothing to do with whether anyone deserves anything. It takes deservedness out of the equation because deservedness isn't the issue. The issue is you're human and and that is enough. You are human and therefore you deserve it. No matter what you've done, no matter what, you deserve grace. And that can be really difficult. It's a really radical idea. Mm. And, uh, but, but really think about it. If you, if somebody else treated you like you treat yourself, would you stay in a relationship with that person? Probably not. Probably not. And, and most of us are in that boat. And yet, you are stuck in that carcass with yourself. And you can't get away with your, from yourself, right? And you have to understand that it begins everything, everything begins with kindness it begins with you being kinder to yourself not nice nice is superficial i'm talking about kind showing yourself grace saying i may not deserve it but that's irrelevant i am going to be kind to myself and i'm going to give myself another chance I'm going to allow myself to back off and rest and recover and recuperate and nourish and grow. And then I'm going to try again because there are things I care about and there are people I care about and things I want to do in this world and contributions I want to make to my little corner of the world. But it all begins with grace, begins with kindness. It begins with you understanding that you can be your own worst critic. And then, you know, you can let your, you can let that part of you vent. And then you can say, okay, now you've had your say. Now I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. And I may fail, but give me a chance and let's try this. And let's learn from this and let's allow ourselves to grow because success and failure are right here together at the edge. And if you're not willing to fail, you will never have your best successes and you must allow yourself to fail and say, that's okay. That's part of being human. That's, that's how we grow. And, and I'm going to try again. And, and that's how you save yourself. That's how you choose life. You don't allow yourself to become the bottleneck. Wow. I've got, I've got so, 
I've got so much from that. I've got so much from you tonight. I, I, I really want to thank you. Um, tell us where we can get your book um, and tell us, uh, you know, where we can get, uh, find out more about you and your yeah. courses. Yeah, just go to yourlifelivedwell.co, C-O. And you can download 100 pages free of the book, see if it's something that you'd be interested in. You can sign up for the webinars and seminars that I do. You can listen to my own podcast, which is an educational podcast. Um, read something in the blog. You can follow me on various social media and you can send me a direct message if you want. So just go to yourlifelivedwell.co and everything follows from that. And I, I would be delighted to make people's acquaintance. That's, that's the best thing about doing what I do. I get to meet so many wonderful people like you who are just doing a little thing here each day to get a little positivity out there and a little connection out there. And, and that's what we need. Yeah. And thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I I genuinely love doing. I fell into this by accident, hence the name, the accidental journalist. I was not I wasn't gonna do this. It was down to uh, a guy uh, by the name of Jason Edwards, who's uh, NLP coach, mindset coach, is a hostage and barricade negotiator by trade. Um and he, he said to me, why not do a podcast? And um you know, I, I started it to help build my confidence um, and it's just become something way, way, way further than I thought it ever could be. I've learned so much more um, from everybody that spoke. I've interviewed over 100 people and everybody that has just given so much knowledge, I'm also better for it. And I, I you know, really... Um, you know, this this nearly didn't happen tonight. Um, you know, uh, through me not knowing about uh, your, your clocks going back, but um, yeah, yeah, that's a systemic change we need. Let's get rid of daylight savings time. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. My my wife's pretty disgruntled that it's happening on Mother's Day here. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. I can't figure out why it's still happening. Who is lobbying for this? I know of no one who wants it. I don't I'm, know. I don't know. Anyway, don't know. we connected, and that was the important thing. That's the, yeah, brilliant. And I'd love to have you on again. Um, sure. You know, um, I'm, I, I know that my listeners and viewers will get a lot, lot from it. Um, I'm just going to um, finish up now and um I'll, I'll i'll cut off the feed and then we'll just have a quick debrief if that's all right very good thanks so much and be well everyone thank you guys ever so much as always um i love you uh thank you for you know being who you are uh, and just supporting me in this there are so many people that, that support me um and I'm so blessed. I want to thank Mr. James Jeffries. Um, uh, and at the moment, without him, um, I wouldn't be able to afford Zoom. And he's paying for this. And this is just, thank you so much. So I need to give a, 
uh, heads up to the um, Gosport anti-bullying campaign. Um, I'll put the link in here as well, along with Kevin's links, um, and, and, and drop in and give that a look. It's, it's so important that we need to nip bullying in, in, in the bud. Um, so, yeah, I shall see you again. Um, if not later this week, I shall see you next week, guys. Cheers.